right now, continually devoted, and we have been using this phrase, which we'll throw up on the screen for you, that the, the, the words continually devoted, most translations just use the word devotion, and that's a really weak definition, a really weak translation of the word, and so we've been really trying to emphasize the depth to which devotion is supposed to go in the church. And so the definition for devotion that's used in most translations is this, continually, intensely devoted, and obstinately persistent to. So it says that they were continually devoted to these four things, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. And the first week we talked about the apostles' teaching, and last week we tied in the apostles' teaching to fellowship. This week we're going to tie in fellowship to the breaking of bread, and then next week we're going to tie in the breaking of bread and prayer and try to bring the whole thing together. That's one more announcement. Sunday, September 2nd, Sunday evening, September 2nd, we're going to have a worship and prayer night here at the church, so uh, please put that on your calendar as well. I know it's Labor Day weekend, but um, most of you all are, are uh, done camping for the summer. And I think if I say that enough, then you'll, you'll be done camping for the summer. <laughs> September 2nd, 5 o'clock, we'll do a potluck and fellowship, and then we'll do a prayer and worship service after that. But uh, continually, intensely devoted, and obstinately persistent too. That is what devotion means in this context. Now, um, we're looking at the breaking of bread, and so I want to kind of just kind of carve out some understanding, and then it looks what it's going to sound like is I'm going to be jumping back into fellowship, which is true, but it's because breaking of bread and fellowship have a lot of overlap, as do all of these, that if we're doing them well and doing them right, they should all overlap. The apostles' teaching should it works best when it overlaps with fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer. When they all overlap and are working together in concert together, they work well. And when we focus too heavily on one without the others, we start to have an anemic church, which is part of the issue that we're trying to address. But when we look at the breaking of bread, there are a few things that it could mean. There's maybe a little bit of debate that, that thinks the breaking of bread is simply sharing a meal together. There are some who think that the breaking of bread is specifically communion or the Lord's Supper or Eucharist, as some traditions call it. I happen to think, based on my understanding and conversations and church history that I, that I know about, I think that it is both together at the same time, that the early church was, they were literally doing life on top of life. They were doing life together, living, and they were sharing meals together daily, and as they met together, there would be a period where they would stop and remember Christ like we do every single Sunday. So I, that's what I think was happening, was taking place in the early church, is that as often as they were getting together, they were remembering Christ. But there's another aspect of it which we're going to dig deeper into next Sunday. We don't have a lot of time for it this Sunday. We're going to dig deeper, though, into the sacrificial living aspect of breaking bread and what that means but there's an aspect of breaking bread that, that is sacrificial living. It is literally taking this thing that I need to survive and sharing it with the body, sharing it with the church. And so it is a sacrificial living where we're breaking bread together and everyone was bringing something together to share. And you can actually see a significant amount of teaching on an emphasis of sharing food together and doing it in a fair way. So there's a lot of overlap. We're going we're gonna to focus a little bit more on the fellowship side of breaking bread, breaking bread and try to gain an understanding of that. But just stick with me um, throughout this morning. Last week we talked about discipling, and there's, there's kind of this mystery to discipleship. But when we look at it this way, that the world is discipling us, the world is constantly discipling us, it's always teaching us to think the way that the world wants us to think, and they're very effective at getting us to think the way that they want us to think. 
And most of their thinking is a, is a product-driven, a results-driven, really honestly a manipulative style of discipleship, getting us to do something they want us to do for their benefit. And the world is doing that very effectively, most of the time trying to convince us that we're unhappy and that this thing or this answer will make us happy. So we talked a lot about that last week when we, talk, when we were talking about the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and how the world is discipling us, and that's an important concept to keep in mind as we move on this morning. And we started talking about life on life and how we as a church family literally need to be doing life on life, that koinonia, koinonia fellowship, which is the word for fellowship there, uh, the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. Koinonia is not simply coming to church, though that is a part of it and an expression of it. It is doing life on life, which is where we are trying to move as a church. Now, um, before I get into this morning's uh, topic, I want you to know something. Um, I have six pages of notes right now, which is about average. Last week was a little bit more. And I know everyone's like, oh, we're going to be here for a long time. I'll just I'll work through them as methodically and quickly as I can. But there are, I have 20 pages of notes on my computer for this morning's uh, talk. And there's a lot of stuff that for some reason has kind of come down heavy on this one particular way of thinking that I think is important for us as a church that is, that is really kind of absent, not just in our church, but with our idea of church today. But before I say that, I want to say I love everyone in this room. And the reason I want you to know that is because what I'm about to say may hit some of us wrong. Now, honestly, probably the people that would hit the worst would be the ones who aren't here this morning. So, uh, we'll have to, hopefully you can maybe help encourage them to listen to this talk later. But the reason I'm sharing this is from my, my heart for you all, is that I want more for us as a church, and I want more for you in your walk with Christ. Oftentimes, I feel like, and, I, and don't take this the wrong way, but I feel like I want more for you than you want for you in your walk with Christ. My desire today is not to, to really kind of bring down the hammer. I, I took out a lot of the, the really hammering parts because I didn't want anyone to just get offended and not hear what I was wanting to say this morning. But my desire is to build us up, and it's because of my love for us that I'm sharing these things. I'm willing to say the things that I think we all need to hear, even if they are uncomfortable for me to share. And I'm going to be honest, it's uncomfortable to share some of these things. But these are things we need to hear, not just the things that we want to hear. Yes, God loves us, but God loves us in this way too. He tells us what we need to hear, not just what we want. So now that everyone's all stressed out and worried, <laughs> I want to maybe start with an illustration. So let's say, just for fun, bear with me, if you will, have a little bit of fun this morning, uh, that I want to become Mr. Universe. I knew somebody would laugh. <laughs> the idea of me becoming Mr. Universe is just too hard to stomach, I know. But just, just for illustrative purposes, just for illustration's sake, let's say I want to become Mr. Universe. So... In order for me to become Mr. Universe, I figure the first step is for me to join a gym. I get a membership at a gym, and I know that to be Mr. Universe means I have to develop and sculpt every single muscle in my body. Ironically, being Mr. Universe has very little to do with actually anything that matters in life. It just seems to be all about your muscles. And so I'm going to be going and striving to be Mr. Universe and developing my muscles, and I'm going to, well, I need to have strength training, right, because I need to, I need to bulge, 
need to have parts of my body. Most of my body needs to be bulging, which I know is getting, becoming a really fun picture in your mind. And, um, but I also need aerobic training because I have too many layers of fat over top of those muscles that need to bulge, and so I need to deal with that, right? And so um, I'm going to have to pay a tremendous amount of attention to what I eat and what I drink because that's going to affect my ability to become Mr. Universe, and probably I'm going to have to get a trainer if I'm going to be really serious about this. Now, I think about this all the time. I'm obsessed with becoming Mr. Universe, even to the point that I have photoshopped my face onto Arnold Schwarzenegger's body. Yeah. So I've printed this picture up and I put it on my wall because I want to be like Arnold. So I'm committed. This is what I want. I hire a trainer, and the trainer says, okay, this is what you need to do, right? You need to do these things. You need to work out these muscle groups on Monday and work out these muscle groups on Tuesday. I know you're so distracted right now that it's not, <laughs> no one's paying any attention. But um, so you need to work out these muscle groups on these days. You need to do these, this many minutes of cardio every single day. You need to eat this number of, of calories and, and these, number, these grams of protein and so on and so forth. And you're going to have to be really picky about, about what you eat and what you put into your body. You need to work out with a partner who can challenge you and push you. If that's not the trainer, then it needs to be somebody else. And you probably need to make some new friends who don't eat so much pizza and cookies. But that's just too much for me. So I say, well, I'm not really a runner. So I'll just spend a few minutes on the elliptical. And I can't imagine life without pizza. And chocolate chip cookies are how I know that God loves me. <laughs> Stefan, I'm in the middle of something here. Get behind me, Satan. No, that's, that's an allusion to a text I'm using in a minute. I'm not calling Stefan Satan. No. Um, but I love pizza and chocolate chip cookies, and these are my friends. I can't just abandon them, and that's what we do when we get together. We eat pizza and chocolate chip cookies. And, well, I'm still sore from the last time I worked out my quads, and I feel a little bit too wobbly when I do the core training because I just don't feel like I can stand anymore. So I'm just going to do bicep curls because that's what's easiest for me to do. And it's just too hard to get my schedule to line up with other people. So I'm just going to do it by myself when it's convenient. And eventually, because I'm just working on my biceps by myself, I decide, well, I can just do some dumb, buy some dumbbells and do that by myself at home so I can stop going to the gym altogether. And then there's no one to tell me that I need to be doing something else besides what I want to do. So I end up looking like this. <laughs> Has anyone ever seen a guy that looks like this? The guy that goes to the gym and only ever does bicep curls? He's just, he's like got these great big quad size and then just nothing else. Or like the, our coach in high school who was really, you know, strong, but he just couldn't give up the chocolate chip cookies and the pizza, so he had this huge gut, but he could bench press more than anyone on the team. And then, inevitably, I don't win Mr. Universe. No big shock, I know. But I don't win Mr. Universe, and when I don't win the competition, then it becomes, well, it was my trainer's fault, and he should have pushed me harder. He should, have, he should have really done this for me. If he was a real trainer, then he wouldn't have let me get away with X, Y, Z, and it's somebody else's fault for why I am like I am, and you can take that picture off of the screen. All right. So... 
Yeah, it's going to be in your heads for a while, I know. That's something you can't unsee. But um, isn't this true for so many of us, though, when it comes to our walk with God, that we really strongly desire something? We really strongly desire something, but if the thing we desire doesn't adapt into our established patterns of life, the thing we desire goes by the wayside. And the reason we get stuck in ruts is not because of someone else not doing their job. The reason that we get stuck in ruts, even though we try to blame shift and push the blame onto someone else, the reason we get stuck in ruts is because of this. Genesis chapter 3, verse 11, this is a lie we have believed from the very beginning. Ever since we turned our backs on God, we have been blame shifting. We've been blame shifting from the beginning. Genesis 3.11, and he said, who told you, this is God speaking, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. See, it's never our fault. It's always someone else's fault. And right now, a pretty big mantra within those who are bouncing around and not being able to find a church home is that it's the church's fault. The reason I'm not growing, the reason I'm stuck is because the church isn't doing what it should be. And so just like we blame trainers when we don't lose the weight and get in shape, we blame the church. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. This is going to be our biggest text for the morning, so if you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, you can do that. I've got some other scripture I'll share with you, but we'll come back to this chapter at the end of the sermon. Matthew 16, verse 13 says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And this is a very important question that we asked on Easter, who do you say Jesus is? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So this was revealed by God himself, and, and Peter is having the supernatural experience with Jesus the Messiah and with God the Father right now. And Jesus says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. And I truly believe this this morning, that when we're gathered here together on a Sunday, on any given Sunday when we're gathered here together, our intention in being gathered together is that we all want a deeper relationship with God, right? I mean, I think that is a real honest desire. And just like Peter, this is, we have an experience and an encounter with Jesus where we experience Christ as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And we have these moments where we, where we fall on our knees and we're surrounded by all these other people who are unified in spirit and in purpose with us and worshiping the same Christ, the same Messiah. But the instant we leave this building, the pull of our established lives is so strong that not only will we not be successful at implementing anything we talked about this morning, most of us, just being honest, most of us won't even think about what we talked about this morning. And again, this is not being condemning or judging just trying to say what we need to say. Why is that? 
Why do we have authentic, honest experiences with God, with Christ, as we're gathered here together, unified by the Spirit? And then when we leave, we, we seem to lose everything. Well, one, I think a huge part of the problem is that we have koinonia. A lot of us have koinonia. We have a lot of fellowship. Koinonia is not just a Jesus word, a, 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 a church word. We have koinonia, but just not with enough believers. We have a lot of fellowship and a lot of relationships, but we don't necessarily have enough Christian koinonia. And if we don't have enough Christian koinonia, I think it really comes back to this question. It's, let me build my case here around it, but I think it actually does come back to this foundational level. If we don't have Christian koinonia, I think we need to ask ourselves this question, do I really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? If I don't have Christian koinonia, I need to go back to the very foundational aspect of my faith and ask, do I really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Why? Well, if I really believe that Jesus did rise from, the, rise from the dead, that he ascended to the Father, and then he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in the hearts of all who believe in him, if I really believe that, if I really believe that he did pay for my sins on that cross, and if I really believe that, that he did make me right with God, so now I can have a relationship with God, if I really believe that, but this belief does not affect my life in any tangible way, do I really believe that? Paul actually makes this case for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's talking about the resurrection, and he's talking about our resurrection and, ad and addressing an argument about the resurrection. But in there, we find some great content for us this morning. He says, now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? It's a very difficult conversation. You can ask Jim about that after the service. And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he's saying, just as, as sure as you know that I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord, which they have heard him do, I face death every day. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, Paul says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do we really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And if the dead are not raised, if not only was Jesus not raised, but we will not be raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And if you're, if you're new to the faith, or if you're new here with us this morning, this is not necessarily for you to hear, but it's a question I think we need to ask ourselves. And what I'm about to ask, I'm not asking to be intentionally provocative, but if the dead are not raised, if we do not be really believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Why are we here? It, it would make so much more sense if we don't believe that to just eat and drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. You see, the reason I think you're here is that you really do believe that. I think we do believe that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. And so what Paul's about to say should then be very important to us when it comes to the resurrection. He says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. In the context of what Paul is talking about, it is, the, it is the bad company that has corrupted the good character of the Corinthian church 
who have been led to believe the lie that there is no resurrection. And he's saying, look, you have been around the wrong people that are leading you to think the wrong things. You need to get out of their influence and come back to your senses as you ought. Then he says this, for there are some who are ignorant of God. He's talking about people who are outside the faith who are ignorant of God. Why in the world, please hear this very clearly, why in the world would we allow those outside the faith to have any influence on our faith? Why would we allow a non-believing world to influence our belief in God? Why would we allow those who do not, who are ignorant of God, who do not have a relationship with God, who do not know God, have any influence or say into how we are going to approach God? It's a question we really seriously need to wrestle with. Do we really believe that Jesus rose from the dead? If we do, while we have fellowship with lots of people, how much time are we spending in Christian fellowship? See, if we really believe that Jesus rose from the dead, it would change our lives because we understand that the Bible teaches bad company corrupts good character. And so my friends are very important to my ability to have a relationship with God. The influence of people in my life has a very big effect on my relationship with God. And so, as you've heard me say this quote from Andy Stanley before, your friends determine the direction and quality of your life. Who you spend the most time with are going to determine the direction your life goes. Because we become like who we spend the most time with. So who are we fellowshipping with? Who are we doing life on life with? Who do we have koinonia with? And if we find ourselves constantly struggling in the faith, there's a good chance our fellowship is with the wrong people. James chapter 4, verse 4 through 8, James says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that He jealously longs for the Spirit He has caused to dwell within us? But He gives more grace. He gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. 1 John chapter 2.15 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires will pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Why should, we be, why should we be so concerned about the world? You know, so much of our effort and our energy and our time and attention is developed by the world's desires for us and us going along with what they think they should be. But Scripture makes it pretty clear that we should not have so much influence of the world in our lives. Well, why should we be concerned about that, you might be asking? Why is this such a bad thing? Aren't we supposed to spend time with non-believers? Absolutely, that is a, a thing we're supposed to be doing. But who is our primary dominant influence? And why should we be concerned about how much influence the world has on us and, and the influence that, that people with a worldly way of thinking have on us? Why should we be concerned? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 4, you've heard this before, says... The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the God of this age has blinded the mind of unbelievers. That means the people who don't believe cannot see the gospel that we see. And until God opens their eyes and until they see Christ for who He is, their desires are going to be counter to the desires of God and what God has and his life. But if we're truly living in fellowship, in koinonia, life-on-life fellowship, where we are all 
united, truly united by the Spirit of Christ, then when we are gathered together in fellowship by the Spirit of Christ, then we can understand that the influence we are receiving is not just the influence of a person with an agenda, but it's the influence of the Spirit at work through a person and the Spirit's agenda to draw us to Christ. That's why it's important. Unbelievers have not seen the light. So who, who has influence in your life? Let's talk for just a little bit more about the, about the world and our desires. I think this went, went through Facebook maybe this week or last week, but I was talking about prayer and how prayer is trying to get God to line up. Uh, our, our approach to prayer is trying to get God to line up with our desires. Or maybe, Becky, did you share that on Workplace? What did it say? You can pull it up. I'm going to test her speed and accuracy. I've said before that, that we... we Yeah. We spend so much time trying to get God to line up with our will, with our desires, and not nearly enough time allowing God to reshape our desires. I know we all have desires in this room who, that aren't for God, but what we need is for God to reshape our desires. So it's not just working harder to try to do more God stuff in our lives. So please don't hear me say that this morning. That is not my emphasis at all. More effort to try to do more God stuff in your lives. What this is about is about spending more time with God and with people in Christian communities so that God can actually do the work of reshaping us into the image of Christ. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Peter just had the revelation that Jesus is the Messiah. We pick up there. It says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Did you hear that? You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Peter, remember, Peter has just made this confession that Jesus is the Messiah. You are the Christ. He had what we, what we experienced. He had the super spiritual experience with Jesus. But Peter's encounter with Jesus as the Messiah had not yet changed the motives of his own heart. So he was still more concerned with his idea of the Messiah's mission than he was with the Messiah's idea of the Messiah's mission. Isn't that where we get stuck so many times? We get stuck right there where we think Jesus should be about this. 
we think Jesus should be focused on this. This is what Jesus is all about. This is what church is all about. This is what the church is supposed to look like and do. But do we have the motives of the Messiah in our hearts or our own motives? See, Peter wanted wanted Jesus to stay on and be the Messiah the way he expected to be the Messiah, which was to bring in a revolution to that area. And he wanted to be sitting at the right hand of the one who is going to control the region. But Jesus had a much different picture in mind. So I think our desire is good, and we need desire. We need to want something. And when we are gathered here together on a Sunday morning, we should be stirred up to desire more of Christ in our lives. But desire isn't enough. Wanting something isn't enough. If you want something that you've never had, you have to do something that you've never done. Right? If we're, if we're going in a new direction into a new idea of what it looks like to be the church and what it looks like to be in relationship with God, then, then we're going to have to do some things that aren't like we've always done them. Old doors don't lead to new experiences. We have to start making some different choices. And I think this is a hard truth for us. Someone just texted in, delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of, of your heart. Yeah, that's a good one. When your delight is the Lord, then the desires of your heart change. Too many Christians manipulate that verse to say, well, I'm delighting in the Lord, so God, give me a new car. It's because we suffer from what I call Burger King Christianity have it your way. We want Jesus on our own terms. That's their slogan, right? It's Burger King. Have it your way, or it used to be. I don't know, I got confused with all of the King and the weird commercials that they did, and that was all the creepy stuff kind of messed me up. Still need some counseling for that, I think. But it's, we, we suffer from the customization syndrome. We think we can customize everything because everything in our world is fully customizable. We can get everything we want the way that we want it, and we can go in and we can select what we want. That's Burger King Christianity. That's wanting Jesus on our own terms. And we don't just apply that to Jesus. We apply it to the church. And then when the church isn't giving it to us our way, then we hit the highway until we find one that will. But that's so very far from the truth. That is so far from what God has in mind for us. That's so far from from God's desire for us. God's heart for us is so much different than that. Some of these have been working on for a few weeks, and so. But now that I'm standing up here in front of you, they seem really harsh, but I still need to say it, so just bear with me, if you will. Any customization of Jesus, any customization of God, or any customization of His Word, any customization of His community where we say, this is what we think it should be, This is what I want. If you don't give me what I want, I'll find someone who will. It's idolatry. That is to say that anything God says and anything God expects cannot be changed. Anything that God says and anything God expects cannot be changed. I'm not saying we need to go back to a a puritanistic religion where we just have these rules and we hold one another accountable to them with whips and spears. It's not what I mean, but 
If we want God's peace, we have to live by God's priorities. If we want God's peace, we have to live by God's priorities. Otherwise, nothing will ever change. We will never change. If we want God's peace, we have to live by God's priorities. And so we cannot go to Scripture like Thomas Jefferson did and pick the parts that we like and cut out all the parts that we're not comfortable with. We need to go and see what he says the church is supposed to look like. We need to go and see what he says our relationship with him is supposed to look like. We need to go and see what he says are my responsibilities as someone in the faith. It is not for me to choose what I'm comfortable with. It is for me to believe that this God who loves me so much that he is jealous for my spirit, that he has in his intentions for me the very best intentions towards me, and because he has the best intentions towards me, I understand that what he says, no matter how difficult, no matter how confusing, no matter how countercultural it is, what he has for me is so much better than what I'm experiencing as a result of my own pursuits, and what I need to do is sacrifice and surrender myself to his will and to his purposes instead of trying to get God to line up with mine. So we have to start changing some things. Got dehydrated this weekend. I want to give you some very specific application as we bring this to a close. Very, very specific. First application is black it out. Black it out. I don't know if you keep a calendar, but if you keep a calendar and you know an old school written calendar, you probably have some things on your calendar that are non-negotiable. That there is nothing that's going to come and take place of this thing. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23 says, "Let us hold Let us hold you know, kind of comfortably. Let's let's kind of let us hold just kind of as it feels good to the hope that we profess. You know, as it works and, and it's convenient for you, let us hold to it. For he who promised is kind of mediocre to you anyway. And let us, let us consider, let's think about how we, can, uh, let's, how we can skirt the issues and beat around the bush with one another, not really address the things that we all see, but let's just, let's just kind of, you know, maybe we can help somebody, maybe we can. If not, well, God's going to do it anyway. He'll deal with it how He wants to deal with it. And, you know, uh, you know uh, let, when it works in your schedule, meet together. I mean, there's those crazy people that are in the habit of doing it all the time. You don't need to be like them. I'd call that the uh, 21st century American translation. Listen to the uh, very clear and blunt and direct language. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Unswervingly. Why? He who promised is unswerving in his faithfulness towards us. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. It's not waiting until, you know, they hopefully stumble on the issue themselves and they see the solution to the problem. Have you ever considered that maybe God put you in their path to help them deal with that problem? Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching, and we're 2,000 years removed from the writing of this text, and all the more is a whole lot more than it was to them. All the more as you see the day approaching. Don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another. That's why we're focusing so much on encouragement here at the church. We want to encourage one another in the faith and, and build one another up in the faith, and we want this to be the most encouraging thing you experience in the week. 
We want to do it here as we're gathered together to black it out. See, making church, our Christian community, our our relationship with God a priority is never going to happen by accident. If we're just waiting until all the stars align so that it's convenient in our schedules, it's never going to happen. Instead, it's a decision that we need to make once and then make all of the decisions around this decision. Why? All the more. All the more. All the more as you see the day approaching. All the more meet together. All the more be devoted to one another. Make the decision once. Make it in your heart today that I am blacking out my fellowship time with Christian community and nothing is going to interfere with that time and I am going to be devoted to my brothers and sisters in Christ in a world that says not to be. Literally, I did some research on this because there are hundreds of events you can choose from this very Sunday. Went on just Facebook. This is just Facebook events, and there are hundreds of events for today in the Portland metro area. So there are literally hundreds of options of things that you could be doing that have Facebook events, and that doesn't take into account all of the attractions that are around us. There's the beach, There's the mountains, there's endless camping, there's endless hiking. There are so many things that we can do around us on any given day. If we don't black it out and make it a priority, we'll find ourselves months and months, if not years, drifting from church because, well, there's this thing, and it's not a bad thing. And I'm not condemning the doing of these things by any means. They are good things, but they're not the best thing. And if church is just one of the options, church will lose all the time. Why? Because like this morning, church isn't always a real fun, entertaining experience. And that's because our desire is not your entertainment. We're concerned with the transformation of our eternal souls. So I would love to see, and I would actually love for you to take a picture and put it on workplace. Take a big old permanent marker and just black it out. Just black it out. There is no option for anything other than this time that is set aside for God. There will always be an excuse. This actually came up on Workplace a couple of weeks ago that there's always an excuse. Do you know why there's always an excuse? Because Satan is a deceiver and he'll do anything to keep you away from God. So you don't need God because you can go do this and you can go do that. You'll get God later. And that's what Satan is going to do. He's going to try to give us an excuse to not be there. Well, being at church is very important. I'm not going to ever underemphasize that. But it's not enough. It's not enough. I did some math, and I don't have it because I cut it out, but now I'm feeling like I want to share it. So I think um, if you take the two hours that we have together into account of the whole week, it's something like 1.68% of your week of your awake hours, not counting your sleeping hours, but just your awake hours, the two hours that we have together together on a Sunday morning, 1.68%. That's not enough. Especially when we are bombarded by hours and hours and hours of discipleship from the world when we're on our devices and when we're watching TV and we're doing all of these things, we're constantly being discipled by the world, 1.68% isn't going to cut it. Because discipleship happens daily, not in a day. Discipleship, learning to follow Jesus, being shaped into His image happens daily. It's a daily in and out pursuit of every single day. It's not a, not a one-day-a-week kind of activity. It's not a when-it-works-in-our-schedule activity. It needs to be something we do every single day, which is why 
we started looking for something like workplace. The reason we went looking for something like workplace is this very issue, is because the church is losing the influence battle in the lives of its believers. We're losing the influence battle because we're so influenced by the world and the world's ways on a day-in, day-out basis, whether that is by our phones or by the media we consume or, or the news that we read or the news that we watch. It is all influencing us in a direction, and the church is losing the influence battle. So we went out, we went out searching for a way to influence the lives of six to eight people where they are every single day. And there's some lies that I've heard going, out, going around about workplace, and I try to address them every time they come up. One of the lies is that, well, it's just another thing that I have to check. If you see it that way, it will be that way, but that's a lie. If you've been on workplace, you would know that workplace is not just another thing you have to check. It's actually full of encouragement for your faith. So it's not just another thing to check. It's not just another way for us to ask you to do more stuff and to take up more of your time. That's not why we're doing workplace. Communication is important, and that's an aspect of workplace. We need a communication tool. But that's not why we're doing workplace. But the real reason is that it's this, what we're talking about today. It's breaking bread together daily. It's life on life. It is community of Christ, Christian fellowship. It's a way for not just me but the community of Christ at 6-8 Church to have influence in my life. Now, I post a lot of things on there because I want you to have the encouragement on there when you get it, but it's not just me who posts on there. And I would love for us to all post on there more often the encouragement that we're receiving in our walk. What am I learning? What is God teaching me as I go through this journey? The reason we're doing workplace is this. It's going it's to be a catalyst to be continually devoted to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer in our daily lives. That's why we're doing workplace. That is the whole reason why we put so much emphasis on it, because we want to break bread daily. And the honest truth is that we're probably not going to get together and share meals every single day. But the heart behind, I think, breaking bread daily is is getting together and being in koinonia with one another and sacrificially living in community. So I'm asking you to get on workplace and be involved and engaged on workplace, not for me, but for you. The last thing, and we're closing, is this. Breaking bread daily. Breaking bread daily. First, I think we need to get in the better habit of inviting people into our homes and breaking bread to get together, sharing out of the abundant resources God has blessed us with. You can wait on us to organize it, but you might be waiting for a long time. What I would love to see happen is over the course of the next three or four months, heading up through the Christmas season, is that we just commit to inviting people into our homes once a week, get together with somebody from church. If you're not comfortable inviting somebody into your home, which there should be no stigma attached to that, because that is not why we're coming into your home. We're not coming into your home to judge your home. But if it's an issue for you, then go out to a restaurant. Go to McDonald's. Buy something off the dollar menu. Break bread with somebody. In a pretty practical way, we're trying to equip you with this for one week. We bought some of these, which I hate, but uh, these are the prepackaged communion things, and they have the wafer on top. It's not creamer. Tim thought it was creamer. But um, we bought enough for you to take one for every day this week. And for if you have, if you have, People living in your house besides yourself, take one for every member of your household to have one every day this week. Another consideration would be 
If you work with believers at, in, at, your, at your workplace, if you have believers who work with you and they're Christians, then take some for them for every day. You're working with them this week. And we have two boxes. We'll make sure we get some at the doors. And what we're going to do is on workplace a couple times a day, probably at noon, right at noon for your lunch hour, and then sometime in the evening, probably around 6 or 6.30. Tuesday night we'll do it during the Bible study, but we'll just, we'll just get together on workplace, do a short three-minute, four-minute video where we stream taking communion together daily. Coming together as the body of Christ with the same spirit and purpose, and we're just going to take communion. Just take a few moments. We're just going to draw our attention to Christ and break bread together daily. And so, when you leave, take, take as many as you need. We have enough for everybody to take some for every day of the week for all of the people who, who come here, it's about, including your kids. I did the math. And so, um, so take some. But we're going to close, and I just want to ask this question. What if we as a church just poured ourselves into whatever it is that is available and see what God does? What if we just decide we're going to pour ourselves into whatever it is that's available and we're going to see what God does? Instead of withholding our commitment until our demands are met, we just commit to what's already available. What if instead of holding our commitment or our tithe hostage until the ransom of our personal preferences has been paid. Let's just, what if we just poured ourselves into whatever's available? What if we stopped saying, I need this ministry or this program, and I need this to be able to do this? What if we, instead of saying that, we just said, I'm going to pour myself into whatever is available? Because maybe the reason that that program doesn't exist is God's actually keeping that program from existing because He wants you to want Him more than you want that. But what if we just poured ourselves into it and, and just sacrificially poured ourselves into anything that's available, not, not demanding or expecting something in return, but just desperately sacrificing ourselves, giving of ourselves in a sacrificial manner? That's what breaking of bread is. It's, it's sacrificial living. This is the heart of breaking bread, which we're going to continue to dig in next week. It's that, that thing that I need for my own survival is what I'm sharing with you. And if we all live sacrificially in this way, then no one goes hungry. But if only a few of us do it, and others live off of the generosity of a few, the few literally get the life sucked out of them. So what if, what if we poured ourselves into this? What if we took back what Satan has stolen from the church and started living like this again? What if we stopped believing all the lies that Satan has told us about what church is supposed to be and how it's supposed to look, and instead of allowing our church to be defined by people outside the faith instead of allowing our church to be defined by our own personal preferences. We just sacrificed our personal preference and said, your greater purpose is what I desire. What if? Let's stand together. Heavenly Father, I know this is a weighty teaching. I know this is heavy. I've felt the weight of it for many weeks as I've been preparing for it. And I know there may be those who are here this morning who are really just feeling the weight of it. But I pray, Father, in these moments as we look at the cross, as we look at the sacrifice that was made for us, as we look at the example of our brother, Jesus Christ. And the sacrifice he made for us so that we could experience something so much greater. I pray, Father, that this weight would be turned into joy. That we would stop looking at things in our relationship with you and our relationship with the church and our relationship with other believers from a how-this-affects-me standpoint. 
and start looking at it as Christ looked at the cross, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Who when he looked beyond the cross, he saw us. When he looked beyond the cross and scorning its shame, when he looked beyond the cross and felt the burden of the cross, he looked and he saw the church. He saw the bride of Christ that was being prepared for him. And because he saw that, he saw even the hardest thing of sacrifice as joy. I pray, Father, give us that perspective as a church that we would be able to now be able to for the joy set before us, sacrifice all of our personal preferences and all of our demands and all of our exacting requests of what we think church should be, that we would, for the joy set before us of being a body set aside for the purposes of Jesus Christ, the holiness of which cannot be counteracted by this world, that we are so set apart for God's glory and for His desires that, that we are going to lay it all down once and for all because that's what Christ did for us, because he looked beyond the cross. Help us to look beyond whatever sacrifices we have to make. All this is for your glory, that your name would ever be on our lips, that we would be a people so set apart for the works of God that we cannot help but talk about him in our day-to-day lives, that we cannot help but want to break bread together daily, that we're just drawn every day to be with the body of Christ, and we want to fellowship, we want to break bread with our Christian family. Stir in us so deeply this desire that it cannot be affected by the discipling of the world when we leave this place in a few short minutes. Father, I pray, rooted in us, rooted and established, and your love, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.